Um, it was on July 19th, uh, 2000, that Jamie and I were baptized uh, on the same day as uh, born-again Christians. We were surrounded by family and friends. It was a, a midweek service. We uh, treasured that day, and as we talked with all those that came to the service in which we were baptized in, there was a young man there named Ryan, and he shared with me a verse that he thought was appropriate for what we were feeling as um, born-again Christians celebrating our baptism. And he shared a verse that uh, I want to share with you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8, um, and then I'll add to it verse 9. I underlined it in my Bible. In fact, um, I actually brought that Bible because um, when you first start studying the Bible, you need a really good study Bible, I think. You know, you need some commentary in there and help you out. And uh, my mother, who's here today, she got this Bible uh, for me. In fact, I looked it up at, back in 1998, March 7th. And, she, um, and I was reading this Bible for a long time. I underlined in there, 1 Peter 1, 8, after our baptism. And um, I have lots of notes in there. Uh, and this is the scripture. It says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When Peter wrote this letter to these Christians, they had never met Jesus before. He met them. He spent three and a half years with them. But these Christians, didn't, they never met Jesus. He had died, resurrected. He was, they never met him. But yet, what he points out is, is that their joy was the same as his same as mine, the same as Jamie's. It's an inexpressible joy. And that's what our baptism um, just brought on all those feelings of being in Christ, being saved, being loved. And we publicly celebrated that. Now, when Peter wrote this letter, first Peter I'm referring to, when he wrote this letter to the Christians, he wrote to them in 60 AD when you couldn't really publicly celebrate your faith because you were risking persecution. And so he writes this letter really kind of specifically to those Christians that were suffering because of their faith. He says to them in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When you, when you suffer as a Christian for, for the sake of Christianity, that's a normal part of the Christian life. Peter says it's actually a good thing that you do this because then he says in verse 14, if you are insulted in the name of Christ, you're blessed and the spirit of glory of God and of God rests upon you. I mean, raise your hand if anyone's ever made a joke at your expense because you're a Christian. Yeah. And if you're not raising your hand, well, then maybe you're being a little too quiet about your faith, and maybe you're living in a Christian bubble and you need to get out there and get your face slapped. So you can do what Jesus said and turn the other cheek. Think about it. Suffering for Christ, that's a blessing, Peter said. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed. You're glorifying God. Now, I know not every church is going to teach this. They're not going to teach you that suffering is part of the Christian life. 
Because there are churches out there that are going to promote what's called the prosperity gospel. And they only preach what people want to hear. And what do people want to hear? They want to hear, God's got the best life for you. God has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Well, tell that to all the Christians that died for their faith, the martyrs. Tell that to the people that sacrificed their financial future so they can serve the Lord. Tell that to those that are living in hostile countries right now, sharing the love of Jesus, telling people the good news about Jesus, and risking their lives. They're not to suffer? Because we're a Christian now, we get to, to just live this perfect life? That's not Christianity. It's normal to suffer. And God has a plan. I know God has a plan. But sometimes that plan is we suffer. We suffer for our faith. The safest place to be is always in the center of God's will. It's the safest place. You ask missionaries that are over in those countries serving right now, they will tell you, I'm in the safest place. Right? I'm in where God wants me to be. They don't mind even though they're in a hostile country. Peter points out, though, that doing good is worthy of suffering. But then he says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't suffer for doing evil. Suffer for doing good. I think doing good is really the message of this letter. I know he's writing to the suffering Christians, but I really think the main message, if you will, to these Christians is, you need to live holy lives. Because he says to them in uh, the first chapter, verses 14, 15, and 16, he says, as obedient children, don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. And if you were here last week, right, the next verse comes from what, ver- what, what book did we cover last week? Leviticus, that's right. The third book in the Old Testament, and lots of rules, but really the theme is, be holy as I am holy. And that's why these books go together, and that's why I'm teaching them in this order. Your passions got the best of you before you were a Christian, didn't they? Guilty, right? I admit it, all right? And they still get us sometimes. But we are not supposed to continue in that lifestyle when we become a Christian. That's what Peter's saying. Be holy as I am holy. You're being sanctified. You're being set apart for God. Act holy. That's the title that I gave this message. Holy living. Because I think when we look at these three books that we're covering today, 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, and Titus, we see the same message throughout. We see we are called to be holy, to live holy lives, holy living. Now, holy living, I believe, has tremendous benefits, multiple benefits. The greatest benefit, by the way, is actually not for you. I know we think that, oh man, if I am a good boy, (laughs) and if I'm a good girl, right, then I'm going to get rewarded. Isn't that kind of how we grow up, right? Thinking that way? But the scripture tells us here that the greatest benefit of holy living is actually going to benefit someone else. It's going to benefit someone else, and I'll show you why. First, I want to ask you a question, though. Why do people not go to church? Why are there people out in our community right now 
There's almost 50,000 people in St. Clair Shores. We don't have enough churches to, to, to house the amount of people in St. Clair Shores. Why are they not going to church? Now, I know some might say, well, um, they think if they go to church, the roof is going to collapse. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many times that joke comes up, all right, when I invite people to church. I don't know, do I hang out with a lot of guilty people or something? Because they think the roof is going to collapse on them. But I assure them, it's structurally sound, and uh, it's not going to happen. Why do people not come to church? Because they think we are what? They think we're hypocrites. That's why a lot of people don't go to church, because they think Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. We're holy on Sunday, but we're a-holy Tuesday through Saturday. I couldn't wait to tell you that one this week. <laughs> Please don't be holy on Sunday and a-holy the rest of the week. Especially if you're wearing a Life of Purpose shirt, okay? You make us all look bad. But you make God look bad. We're supposed to be holy all the time. And when we're holy, the greatest benefit of being holy, it's not for you, it's not to make you feel good about yourself or to look good with God, the greatest benefit of holy living is, uh, is heard in 1 Peter 2.12. In 1 Peter 2.12, this is what Peter said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, because they will, they will talk trash about you, because you're a Christian, but when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Just let that sink in. When people see you living holy, they will glorify God. If they see you living holy lives, because most of the time, what do people see? Hypocrites. People acting all holy. They say they're a Christian. They say that you see them go, out, you know, go to church on Sunday, and yet you see a whole bunch of other things that don't look like holy living. And uh, our holiness, if we get it right, friends, if we get this right, if we act holy, if we live holy lives, we actually will lead people to Jesus. They will want to be a Christian. I think a lot of the reasons why people don't go to church today and they don't want to be a Christian is because they see a lot of people claiming to be Christians and uh, confessing it with their mouth but denying it with their lifestyle, as the old Jesus uh, or uh, DC Talk song goes. Don't deny it with your lifestyle. Be holy as he is holy. Um, Peter gives a couple examples of how we can actually do this. We can live this out. One of them is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says to wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, that's a, let's not get into that conversation. That's a whole other uh, sermon right there, okay? Just stay with me, all right? I don't want to lose anybody. Wives, if you just got nudged by your husband, I'm sorry, okay? But... If they only understood what that means, what their responsibility is, then they might not nudge you. But it says, if, if some husbands don't obey the word, they may be one without the word, but by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And I believe this works both ways. I believe if your husband is not a believer, or if your wife is not a believer, I believe you can win them to Christ with your holiness. Let's face it, you've tried nagging. It didn't work. <laughs> right? You tried the guilt trips. That doesn't work. How will you win your spouse to Christ? 
by your holiness. By your holy living. Try it. I believe it works. The other example for church leaders is for church leaders that Peter gives. Elders specifically, pastors, church leaders, elders, deacons. He says specifically in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and don't domineer over those in your charge. And this is my favorite part. This is the, why I bring it up. Be an example to the flock. I mean, my calling as a pastor is to lead you spiritually, to shepherd you, to feed you the word of God, to love you, encourage you. And the truth is, I can only take you as far as I go myself. I can only take you as far as I go myself. I have to be holy and lead by example. How can I expect you to go any farther than I go myself? Isn't that true? In all of our lives, and all of our experiences, and I bring this up because you are leaders too. There's somebody is looking up to you, right? You know it. You got grandkids. You got um, others that are looking at you, children, and they want to be like you. They do. They want to be like you, and you got to lead by example. Be holy, so they will glorify God. And I just ease your mind if I could. You don't have to be perfect, all right? God isn't asking for perfection, but God is asking you to strive for it, to strive for perfection. It reminds me of this this concept that we talk about in the school with uh, teenagers. Do you have a growth mindset or do you have a fixed mindset? Because you got to be willing to grow, you know, and mature. And I think that really applies to us as Christians. Do you have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset? Because a fixed mindset says, you know what, I am who I am. I know I've been doing this and I know I do this wrong, but you know what, that's the way I am and I'm not changing. That's a fixed mindset. But a growth mindset says, you know what, God isn't finished with me yet and I can always do better. That's a growth mindset. What's your mindset? How do you think about things? I think Peter had a wonderful growth mindset, and he's a great example for us. He wrote this letter, and if you know the life of Peter, you know he really knew knew how to mess up, right? And he didn't just mess up like a little bit, like he messed up big. He was good at it, you know? You're probably like, yeah, man, I I like Peter. I, I can relate. He denied Jesus three times. He stuck his foot in his mouth all the time. He was a... Class A, mess up. But you know what? Jesus encouraged him. He built him back up. He restored him. And that's what God does for you. He builds you back up. He loves you. Peter had a wonderful growth mindset. He matured in his faith. He went on to lead the church, right? God trusted him to do that. And he's a great example for us to be holy as I am holy. And of course, when you have Peter... Then you also think of Paul. When we have the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul, because he wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. And two of the books that we're looking at today that we have are 1 Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy and Titus are those two um, letters. There's also 2 Timothy. We've already covered that. But they're letters to pastors, really. I mean, because Timothy and Titus were young pastors. They were young elders. 
And they were called on to do some pretty difficult things in their church. And so Paul writes to both of them saying, first of all, listen, you must understand, if you're going to lead God's church, you've got to do it with the foundation of the word. You've got to have sound doctrine. And the word doctrine just means teaching. Sound teaching. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I urged you, young Timothy, when I was going into Macedonia, you stay here in Ephesus and you charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That was foundation. Got to have good teaching, good Bible teaching. If you're not teaching the Bible in church, what the heck are you doing? Entertaining people? I mean, we're here to teach the Word of God, right? And with sound teaching has to be holy living. you got to have holy living. They go together. The Bible isn't simply to inform you. It is to transform you. Can I get an amen? It's got to change you. It's got to change your life. It's got to change the way you think. That's what the Word of God does. And Timothy was this young man, and Paul gave him this really difficult task to teach in Ephesus and uh, pastor it. And Timothy was a young man, and that was difficult when there's a lot of older folks Right? Uh, you know, I remember when I first started off in ministry, I felt I was actually just reading through um, some things I had written down a long time ago when I was a youth pastor. And, and uh, I thought to myself, you know, that old saying Jesus said, a prophet is without honor in his own country, you know, and it's like, is it because, like, you know, am I young and they're just not respecting me, like, that I'm called to do this ministry? And I was um, um, just a little frustrated with everything. And I, I, so I know what it's like to be young and in ministry. And I still know what it's like to be young and in ministry. So, so Paul says to Timothy, 1 Peter or 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. He says, Timothy, you need to set an example in five areas: in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. And I love that verse. That's the verse that our youth ministry. Um, kind of hangs its hat on. That's what we, you know, our youth um, um, should know this verse, that, that as young people, um, they can still be an example to others. And here's, here's Timothy. You know, you've got to be an example in, in what you say to people, how you act, how you love, how you trust God, and how holy you are. And I began to think about that verse for a little bit, and I thought, you know, what if every Christian used that as a self-reflection every day of your life? What if tonight you sat on your couch or, or laid in your bed and you just prayed and said, God, how'd I do today? How'd I talk to others? How did I act toward others? Did I love others today? Did I trust you today, God? Was I holy today? Man, what would your life be like if you just did that every single day? That's a growth mindset, Right? People who are, have a fixed mindset, they're like, no, nah, I'm not going to ask those questions. Self-reflection is about growth, right? We want to grow. We want to get better. So what a great verse to reflect upon and think about, to be holy as God is holy. Now, holy living cannot be a secret. You cannot do good things and it be a secret. Timothy uh, was told in chapter 5, verse 25, good works are conspicuous. That means easily seen. And even those that aren't easily seen, they cannot remain hidden. You do a good thing for someone, 
right? You, you hold a door open for someone, you, you help carry in someone's groceries, or, or you help out a neighbor. That's easily seen, right? That, that's, that's there. I mean, we can see that. But sometimes you do things that nobody sees. I used to walk down the hall and pick up the trash in the hallway. And I did that, nobody saw that, all right? And I didn't do it for anybody else, but just to, because I can't stand seeing garbage in the hallway. So I'd pick it up. You know, you might give really generously to the Lord's work here. You might go way above a tithe, the 10% of you. You might be an awesome giver, and nobody really says anything to you about it. But you tell, I tell you what, the word, uh, when you do good works, they don't remain hidden. God has a way of bringing things to light when it's his timing. And you know what? If no one ever knows, he does. He knows. He does. Holy living is never a secret. Paul finishes his letter on the topic of giving, encouraging Timothy to challenge the wealthy in Ephesus. He says in chapter 6, verse 18, the wealthy are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. I think holy living is holy giving. I do. I think if God has blessed you financially, then you should bless others financially. Giving will change your heart. That's what Jesus said. Right? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I think giving just changes your heart. That's why I put that on there. Just It changes you. It makes you so, I mean, it changes everything about you when you give. I hope you'll do it. Paul also wrote a letter to Titus, which gets way less attention. And I'll be honest, I confess, you know, I like, First and Second Timothy, I've read those so many times over, and I, and I haven't read Titus even close to many, you know, as how many times I've read Timothy. But then I began to study Titus for this message, and I saw something that I don't think I ever saw before. I recognized how much Paul told Titus to live holy, to live holy lives. Like, that's how you lead the church. You live holy lives. You can't miss it in Titus. He says it over five times, do good works. Do good works. I think the theme of this letter is found in Titus 2, verse 12. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then these words here. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what we're called to do. That's what Paul told Titus. Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. He says in verse 7 and 8, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. That's that's our lifestyle. Be a model of good works. When people look at you, when they think of you, do they think of you as a person of, wow, they do a lot of good things. That's what you want. You want people to think of you as, man, they have a reputation for doing a lot of good things. And in your teaching, he tells Titus, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, and here it comes again, so that your opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The greatest benefit of holy living is that you put to shame your opponents, the ones that speak against you, and you lead others to Christ. Did you know that in the place that Titus had to lead the church community, it was a little island called Crete. Crete. That's where Titus was pastoring a church. 
Paul actually writes in Titus 1, uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, A Cretan said, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, that testimony is true. (laughs) So therefore, Titus, you should rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. Titus was a pastor of a really rough group of people. Think of a rough neighborhood. That's where Titus had to, had to lead his church members. It really made me think of, when I thought about this, it made me think of Pastor Jim Sambala. I don't know if you know who Pastor Jim Sambala is. He was called to minister to a church in Brooklyn, New York in 1971. They had 40 people in the, the heart of Brooklyn. And um, it was so bad. Uh, they had 40 people. The church was falling apart. In fact, drug addicts, um, alcoholics, prostitutes would sleep on the church steps. I mean, this, this, this was a, a rough neighborhood. These were some troubled people. And uh, he was called to that. And I tell you, he, he, I read his, one of his books and, and uh, did a Bible study on, on, prayer, on being prayerful and, and how to pray. Um, through prayer and holy living, Jim Sambala led a lot of those people into recovery and to the Lord. And they continue to do that. That church grew to 10,000 plus. And I don't know if you ever heard of their pretty well-known choir. Uh, they've won six Grammy Awards. It's called the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. That's what happens when we live holy lives, when we love others and live out holy lives like Jim Cimbala and those people did in Brooklyn, New York. Paul urges Titus three times to finish, as he finishes this letter, three times he says it, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, and be ready for every good work. Just think about this in your own life. Are you ready for every good work? To speak evil of no one? I mean, do you speak evil of no one? Do you avoid quarreling? Are you gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people? Tall order here, Paul, right? But this is what he's telling Titus. This is what he expects of Christians. Don't speak evil. Don't quarrel and argue and get into these circular arguments with people. Don't be gentle. Be perfectly courteous. Then in verse 8 he says, It's trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says it again. These are excellent and profitable for all people. And let our people learn, in verse 14, to devote themselves to good works and help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Holy living is profitable for all people. You're blessed if you live holy and you will lead others to Jesus with holy living. I want to finish by asking you to make a commitment. It's a personal commitment. It's between you and God. And the commitment is simply to be holy, to, have a, to live a holy life. See, I don't, I, don't, I don't really care, and I don't know what you did last year or last week or maybe what you did this morning that might be offensive to God. But it doesn't matter because God forgives you. He loves you. And he does have a wonderful plan for your life. 
But I believe when we act holy, when we live holy lives, like we see in the word here, when we decide to do that, it's, it's going to change other people's lives. It's going to change your life, but it's going to change other people's lives. And if you want to make that decision, then you just pray to God today, and you tell him, God, I'm all in for you. I want to be holy like you. Just change me. And just admit, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. So as you pray right now, and you talk to God, if you make that commitment to God, I'll be excited. Please let me know. Put it on your connection card. Um, send me an email. But just make that commitment. I'm encouraging you to do that. And then our team is going to come up. We'll sing our final song. But this is about being holy and saving lives, reaching out to other people through our holy lives. So just bow your heads and pray.